Hear the word of our Lord from Exodus, the 21st chapter. These are the ordinances that you shall set before them. When you buy a male Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, but in the seventh he shall go out a free person without debt. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out a free person, then his master shall bring him before God. He shall be brought to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt unfairly with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out without debt, without payment of money. And let us move on here to the 20th verse of Exodus chapter 21. When a slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod, and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. But if the slave survives a day or two, there is no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. When people who are fighting in, uh, injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a slave owner strikes the eye of a male or female slave, destroying it, the owner shall let the slave go, a free person, to compensate for the eye. If the owner knocks out a tooth of a male or female slave, the slave shall be let go, a free person, to compensate for the tooth. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I like being late to the party, and I recognize there was a debate over slavery well, you couldn't call it a debate. It was more like a, a fight among different parties, uh, many of them Lutheran, arguing over slavery. And quite timely given the whole Juneteenth celebrations that were going on over the weekend. But in the midst of this, the Bible tells us not to go to the right or the left. And we are called to hold to what the word of God truly says. And here is where, as Christians, people who love the word of God, who follow scripture, we have to thread the needle between two extreme camps. There's one camp who says that chattel slavery is sin. It is a sin, full stop. In fact, it's a mortal sin, and if you support it, you are probably going to hell. On the other side, there are people... Uh, not many of them, <laughs> nobody that I know personally anyway, who would say that slavery is a blessing. We should have slaves. We should bring slavery back. And that's not 
something that I would put my stamp of approval either because the Bible doesn't put uh, God's Word's stamp of approval on that either. Let's go to what the Word actually says. Because there is a danger on both camps of engaging in worldly morality on the, on the one side. And remember, Scripture declares friendship with the world is enmity with death. And if we are putting worldly morality above biblical morality, God's ethics, we're engaged in worldliness, sinfulness, enmity with God. But let's also avoid the other extreme where we, where we want worldly morality, just not the current worldly morality. We want the worldly morality of, well, modern day Libya, maybe, or America 400 years ago. I want to look at what the scriptures actually say about slavery. And we're going to find also, in addition to what the scriptures say about slavery, we are also going to really kind of use our minds here. We're going to use a bit of intelligence on maybe why the Bible says what it says. So we're going to be jumping around all over the place in scripture. But just from Exodus chapter 21, Let's parse out what the Bible does say, first and foremost. One, slavery is permitted by God. This does not mean that slavery is permitted for the Christian today in a place like America where slavery is outlawed. We do follow Romans 13, which says, obey the governing authorities. So if you were offered a slave today, or if you were... Uh, unfortunate enough to find yourself near a human trafficker who offered you a slave, do not do so. For you to accept that slave would be sin because you would be breaking the law. But in ancient Israel, according to the word of God, slavery was permitted. And it was not indentured servitude. If we go over here to uh, verse 21, it says the slave is the owner's property. And not only the slave, but if the slave master gives his slave a wife and the wife bears him children, those children belong to the master. Which means that children are the property as well if they are born to a slave. That's what it says here. Um, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he, that is the slave, shall go out alone. So, this is chattel slavery. This is one person being the property of another. However, regarding slaves, what does our Lord say on the other hand? One, if this is a fellow Hebrew, a fellow Israelite, Verse 2 says, when you buy a male Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, but in the seventh he shall go out a free person or a free man without debt. Uh, presumably, this would also apply to women, but uh, verses 7 through 11 make it clear that typically selling a female to a slave master would be for the purposes of marriage, concubinage, uh, don't know how to say that word, uh, marriage or um, arranging a marriage for your son. It says in verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall go out as the male slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. 
you know, bought back by the family. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt unfairly with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. And this is where we get into what you might call rights of slaves. See, God permits slavery, but he also regulates it. So if you're looking to your countrymen and you purchase your countrymen to be your property, it is for a limited time. You are not owning this person forever. You are more or less renting them. It's yours. He is yours for seven years. Unless he voluntarily decides, I want to be this person's property for the rest of my life. Now, also with female slaves, if a man gets a young girl for his son, it says, don't treat her as just anybody. This is a, this is a daughter to you now, which means you have to love your child. This, this is now, you are basically adopting this girl because she is going to be your daughter in law. So slaves here are treated not as mere property. They are property. The Bible does declare that, yes, this is chattel slavery. This is owning another human being. It is not indentured servitude or just employment. It is real property, but this property that you bought is made in the image of God and you will treat them that way. They will have ample opportunity to have freedom once more. So, what do we see here? In addition to that, in addition to having a time limit on a fellow Hebrew slave, and that's important, we'll get to that. In addition to um, saying that the, the man is able to get his freedom back after a certain amount of time, and if he brought a wife with him when he sold himself into slavery, uh, he takes his wife with him when he goes. And in addition, if you, if you have a female slave for your son, you treat her as a daughter. And by the way, it says that he treats her unfairly if she, um, if she doesn't please him. If this uh, master buys a female slave for himself. Meaning, uh, if you don't treat this female slave as your wife, or as a sister, as family... She gets to go free, more or less. Now, it even says that now there's, there's workplace safety stuff here. <laughs> when pe the, um, it says if a slave owner strikes the eye of a fe male or female slave, destroying it, the owner shall let the slave go. Uh, a free person to compensate for the eye. But even more than that, not just an eye, but if the owner knocks out a tooth of a male or female slave, the slave shall be let go, a free person to compensate for the tooth. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather lose a tooth than an eye. What's that getting at? That means that if your slave is injured in a permanent capacity, they go free. You, you pay them back, basically, by letting them go free. You went too far in disciplining them. You got to make it up to them. So that is, that's Exodus 21. That yes, God permits slavery, but he regulates it. He puts limitations on it, especially for fellow Hebrews. But even normal slaves from foreign people have regulations on them. Not the time limit, as we see with Hebrew slaves, but they are still to be treated as people who are made in the image of God. And again, in female slaves, treated like family. Now, if I'm repeating myself a lot, 
Uh, I am going at this at a little bit of a stream of consciousness pace, but also a lot of this repetition needs to be said. Because if we're going to really get at what the Bible says concerning slavery, we really do need to repeat and chew on it and think about it because we are going to be tempted to engage in worldly morality on the one hand, as I said, and we're also going to be tempted to, in rebellion against worldly morality, go to a morality that is still foreign to the scriptures. So if somebody just declares on their Twitter account that chattel slavery is not a sin, that's fine. That's, uh, that's biblical. I would hope that they would at some point tell the, the whole truth, though, that God still places limitations on it. But also, in addition to that, the person who says slavery is bad, well, I, I agree with them. It's not a sin. But it's not good to be a slave, is it? The Bible condemns people who perform kidnappings. Uh, St. Paul says somebody who is a kidnapper, somebody who uh, just takes somebody and forces them into slavery, that's bad. Why? If slavery is no big deal, or if a slave is a blessing because they are a slave, then we wouldn't expect slavers to be condemned like that. But the point of the matter is, is that, well, you can steal people. And we understand that there is the commandment, the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Also, it's better to not be a slave than a slave. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. What does this mean in the context of slavery? Well, I don't want to be a slave. So if I were to own slaves, I would want to set them free. This is the whole point of the book of Philemon. So let's turn all the way to the book of Philemon to really get the thick and skinny on what the New Testament understanding of slavery is. And it's not exactly going to be what everybody thinks it is. Uh, any, anyway, let's go ahead and just read the entirety of Philemon here. It's towards the back of your Bible, just before the letter to the Hebrews. So if you start off in Revelation and just move backwards until you see Hebrews, take a couple pages of a flip over there, and there you go. You're, you're at Philemon, the final letter of St. Paul. So let's go ahead and read this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. 
Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me, so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, in the book of Philemon, St. Paul writes to Philemon here regarding a runaway slave, Onesimus, who finds his way to St. Paul somehow and ends up becoming a Christian. And what does St. Paul say? Well, he says, uh, Philemon, could you let this guy free? I could tell you to let this guy free. I could pull the apostolic authority card here and command you. But what does he say? I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty. What is that duty? Is the Christian under an obligation here to repent of having a slave? Well, that's not what St. Paul is getting at here. Instead, if we go over to verse 14, it said, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. St. Paul is saying, this would be a good deed for you to free this Christian slave Onesimus, who ran away from you. And Christians have a duty to good, do good deeds. That's about it. So it is the business of a Christian who owns slaves to free their slaves. Especially, and most likely because, this is a Christian. And now we get to the heart of what Exodus 21 is saying when there is a limit placed on how long you could have a fellow Hebrew as a slave. Now, the church today being God's Israel. Back then, as now, we understand it's better to be free than to be a slave. But, if there is a circumstance in which a Christian has a slave, they ought to free them if and when they can. At the best opportunity, the moment they can, they should free this slave for the sake of having somebody be a brother to them instead of property to them. This is where St. Paul says that at one point he was useless to you, Meaning, yeah, maybe he gave you worldly benefits, maybe you got money out of this guy, but he's much better to you as a brother, a, a person who encourages you and edifies you in the faith. He is now useful. So the Bible is declaring here that it's better to be free than to be a slave. 
releasing a slave is a good deed, and Christians have a duty to perform good deeds, but not by coercion. And this is where, well, if we apply this to history, that's where we understand that the Civil War was a terrible tragedy. Because there were Christian slave owners in the South who ought to have released their slaves and maybe put them on a sharecropping program or some way to give them freedom but also make society work. That was, that was something they ought to have done. That was their duty as Christians. You have a duty to do good deeds, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. And furthermore, on the, on the flip side of this, it was wrong for the North then to impose this morality at the cost of 630,000 American lives. There was a better way and nobody saw it. And instead, we decided this needed to be a bloodbath to answer that question. These slaves could have been free. They could have been sent home. Everything could have turned out better. Slavery could have been phased out. Lord knows the English had a great model for what they did. Everything could have been fine, but instead we decided to fight a war over it and destroy half the country. That's what makes the Civil War a tragedy. Now, that's about us. Now, we're talking here about slaves who are brothers, brothers in the faith. Is it still a good deed to release a slave who is a non believer? Sure. Because what does that do? That provides a good witness to the faith. My slave master is a Christian and he set me free. There must be something to this Jesus here because he did a good deed for me for my own sake. And Jesus told him to. Oh, this is good. I want to believe in this Jesus, in this Redeemer. And as my slave master redeemed me, permitted me to be redeemed for my freedom, so too do I want to have this redemption that Jesus offers me so that I am no longer a slave to sin, death, and the devil. So do you see now where we are threading that middle between two extreme opinions? Now, again, though, I do think we need to spend a little bit more time understanding slavery in the Old Testament. Because slavery... When we think of it today, we think of it as chattel slavery. We think of whipping human property and forcing them to do labor. And we think of that as an unmitigated, terrible evil. Without understanding that well, back in Old Testament times, it was often a necessary evil. Or the least evil of options you could take. Now... Let's get this out of the way before we, we talk about it. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 9. And this is going to be important. This is incredibly important for us to understand what the word is really saying here. So this is from 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in the 15th verse. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the house of the Lord and his own house, the Millo and the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it down, had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. 
So Solomon rebuilt Gezer, Lower Beth Horon, Baaloth, Tamar in the wilderness within the land, as well as all of Solomon's storage cities, the cities for his chariots, the cities for his uh, cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. Now, wait, wait, wait a second. In verse 15, it says, This is the account of the forced labor, or slavery, that King Solomon conscripted to build the house of the Lord. In addition to all these other building projects, Solomon used slaves to build the first temple. Well, that's interesting. Now, lest we think maybe this was hiring or more of this uh, temporary slavery and everything that we see in Exodus 21, let us continue reading here in verse 20. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were still left in the land, whom the Israelites were unable to destroy completely, these Solomon conscripted for slave labor, and so they are to this day. But of the Israelites, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, and the commanders of his chariotry and cavalry. Oh my goodness. So now we're saying that Solomon used foreign peoples, a different ethnicity, even a different race here, not using labor from his own people who had a this temporary feeling and these different requirements here. Here, King Solomon is using foreign slaves, similar in a way to the way American slavery was run. This is a foreign people I'm going to use them to build the temple. Now, if slavery was a sin, how do we suppose God would react to that? Wouldn't he destroy the temple? Wouldn't he say this is evil and ugly? After all, when King Saul sinned by not destroying the Amalekites, he, he reaches this great victory against the Amalekites, but leaves the king of the Amalekites alive, God does not say, oh, great victory, pal. He says, you didn't do what I told you. It doesn't matter that you won the battle and killed everybody except for the king of the Amalekites. You sinned in this process. You are not going to be king anymore. A, a good thing won by bad activity does not exist when it comes to human activity here in God's eyes. Uh, St. Joseph here, the, uh, the patriarch of the tribes of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, sure, he tells his brothers what you intended was evil, but what God used, God used it for good. Yes, that's true. But when a human being does something faithless and sinful for the sake of the kingdom, God does not honor that. So Solomon, just knowing how God does these things and how he responds to people who sin for quote-unquote good ends, if slavery was a sin, then we should expect God to reject the temple. But instead, let's go all the way to the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 9, starting in the first verse. When Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you made before me. 
I have consecrated this house that you have built and put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised your father David, saying, There shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. Well, oh my goodness. God consecrates the temple that was built with slavery. And only foreign slaves, complete chattel, complete property, slaves that have no time limit on how long they have to be slaves. So, again, threading the needle here, going between and not turning to the right nor the left here. We recognize that slavery is a bad circumstance to be in and it is better to be free than to be a slave. And we recognize as Christians if you can free your slaves, free them. And we recognize that the law of the land applies. If you are, if you're offered slaves, don't buy them because it is illegal. And furthermore, even if it was legal, I would say, because I don't want to be a slave, and the great commandment, the golden rule here, is do unto others as you would have others do unto yourself, I would not want to be a slave, so I shall not buy slaves. Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, agrees with this. He was given an opportunity to inherit his father's slaves when he died, but what did he say? No Christian man should own slaves, so he freed them all. This Robert E. Lee is a great role model for those of us who might find ourselves in a similar situation. If one finds themselves being a missionary to a place like Libya, where slavery is well, it's been back up and running since the Arab Spring incident. But we should not say that slavery, qua slavery, even chattel slavery, to say that it is a sin is to misrepresent what the Bible is getting at. Because we live in a fallen world. Let's, let's talk about that for a bit. And I want to get, uh, since God mentions here in 1 Kings chapter 9, he mentions uh, King David as this model of righteousness. And King David indeed is referred to as the man after God's own heart. So let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8, again, right before 1 Kings. Let's go and let's take a look at how King David ran warfare. Starting in verse 1. Some time afterward, David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. He also defeated the Moabites and, making them lie down on the ground, measured them off with a cord. He measured two lengths of cord for those who were to be put to death and one length for those who were to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also struck down King Hadadezer, son of Rehob of Zobah, as he went to restore his monument at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help King Hadadezer of Zobah, David killed 22,000 men of the Arameans. 
Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David and brought tribute. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David took the golden shields that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Betah and from Barathai, towns of Hadadezer, King David took a great amount of bronze. When King Toy of Hamath heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and to congratulate him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. Now Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold, and bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of King Hadadezer, son of Rehob of Zobah. David won a name for himself when he returned. He killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now would you look at that? This is King David, a man after God's own heart. But what does he do? I want to I really focus in on here in uh, verse 2. He also defeated the Moabites and, making them lie down on the ground, measured them off with a cord. He measured two lengths of cord for those who were to be put to death and one length for those who were to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. So, David beats the Moabites in war and then said... All right, two-thirds of you are going to die. One-third of you are going to become slaves. That's the entirety of the Moabites there. That's his declaration. That is what King David does as a, a way of victory. But it says, what does it say in verse 14, as well as um, in verse 6? The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. If we look at slavery as this terrible, evil sin, then David getting right up on the line of genocide and then making slaves out of the Moabites, making uh, warrior slaves from uh, King Hadadezer's son of uh, Rehob of Zobah, um, we're missing something, aren't we? Why would King David take slaves out of these people and then God continue to bless his campaigns and his warfare? Why would that happen? And I think before we answer that question, we have to ask, what is war really like? In our modern conception of warfare, how does war work? Okay, well, let's not, let's not pay attention here to fifth generation warfare or the, the newest way of uh, morale battles and intelligence games and everything like that. Just looking at second and third generation warfare and some fourth generation warfare. You go to war with another country or a group within another country, as we see with Vietnam and the uh, British war against the IRA. And you fight them until they cannot fight anymore or they decide that they are done. One party wins the war after much violence is done and so a treaty or an agreement is signed. Maybe some land is taken. Maybe a, um, a certain course of action is taken. After World War II, when the American military finally got the Japanese emperor on the table, they said, all right, you're not going to have a military anymore. 
you're, we're dedicated to peace now. We will rebuild your country, but you're basically a vassal state to the United States. At this point, we are, we are now going to use your country as a launching point in our Cold War against the Soviet Empire, and we're going to put our Marine Corps bases here and our Navy bases. Thank you for letting us use Okinawa. That's modern warfare. But modern warfare is kind of predicated on either less scarcity or no scarcity. We are, we are living in what economists often call the post-scarcity era, where taking an economic hit does not mean ruining all of the lives of all of your people. But here, in David's day, in the land of ancient Israel, a war had much greater, more dire consequences. You are killing the men of your country, so you are hurting their future and their ability to reproduce. And by the way, just about all the able-bodied men are going to be fighting. If you win, you're going to be taking territory or treasure, which means that they are not going to be able to pay for things or buy land back, and you are going to be destroying their ability to, uh, to really recover economically or even in an agricultural sense. A great, great, great example of this. If you keep your finger in 2 Samuel here, let's go over to 2 Kings chapter 3, where I think the most brutal uh, act of warfare is committed by the kings of Israel and Judah and Edom. So let's go over here to 2 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to start here in verse 4. Now, King Misha of Moab was a sheep breeder who used to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And, he went, and as he went, he sent word to King Jehoshaphat of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? He answered, I will, I am with you. My people are your people, my horses are your horses. Then he asked, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom set out. And when they had made a roundabout march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that were with them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has summoned us three kings only to be handed over to Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the servants of the kings of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, is here. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to your father's prophets or to your mother's. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has summoned us, three kings only to be handed over to Moab. Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts live whom I serve, were it not that I have regard for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would give you neither a look nor a glance. But get me a musician. And then, while the musician was playing, the power of the Lord came on him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this wadi full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall see neither wind nor rain, but the wadi shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your cattle, and your animals. This is only a trifle in the sight of the Lord, for he will also hand Moab over to you. 
You shall conquer every fortified city and every choice city. Every good tree you shall fell. All springs of water you shall stop up. And every good piece of land you shall ruin with stones. The next day, about the time of the morning offering, suddenly water began to flow from the direction of Edom until the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn up at the frontier. When they rose early in the morning and the sun shone upon the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. They said, This is blood. The kings must have fought together and killed one another. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and attacked the Moabites who fled before them. As they entered Moab, they continued the attack. The cities they overturned, and on every good piece of land, everyone threw a stone until it was covered. Every spring of water they stopped up, and every good tree they felled. Only at Kir Harasheth did the stone walls remain until the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. And he took his firstborn son who was to succeed him and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And great wrath came upon Israel, so they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. That's war. That's what war was like back then. It was not merely kill guys from the other side's army until you come to the table. Oh no. Oh no, it was much worse than that. Here, even God says, here's what you're going to do. You shall conquer every fortified city and every choice city, every good tree you shall fell, all springs of water you shall stop up, and every good piece of land you shall ruin with stones. So God says, here's what you're going to do, guys. Here, here's what I want you to do. Uh, destroy all their cities, uh, conquer them, chop down all their trees so they no longer have shade, they no longer have uh, usable wood, and they're not getting fruit anymore. Stop up their springs of water, so now they can't, they can't feed their sheep with water here. They can't do pasture. Oh, and in addition to that, every good piece of land you shall ruin with stones. So they can't grow anything anymore. That's saying that, here's God saying, ruin the Moabites. Make them economically unable to survive. These people are going to run up close to starvation or wandering for the rest of their existence. In a situation where that happens, when you have such a total, complete, devastating victory over your enemy, what do you do with the conquered people that you just beat? We have a few options. You could kill them all. You could completely genocide them. I suppose that's an option, but that's a sinful one. You're, at that point, you're murdering non-combatants. You're killing people like women and children who have nothing to do with the conflict. But these women and children can't provide for themselves anymore. They have no husbands and no men to do the work in the fields, to do the work of raising the sheep and the lambs. All their pasture is gone, so they can't even try to do it themselves. Again, not that every war was this severe, but even if it was half as severe, the situation is still extremely bad. It gets to such a point, I mean, the, the king of Moab at this point, he knows how desperate his situation is and what just happened to his country. So he sacrifices his son 
as a to a pagan god until the the Israelites, the children of Judah, and the Edomites are so disgusted with what they see, and they go, "Okay, I think you've had enough," and they leave. That's war. So you have the option of killing all of them, but that's murder. That's genocide. That's that's sinful. That's evil with the exception of if God commands it, as he did with the conquering of Canaan by Joshua and the tribes of Israel. But, okay, so genocide isn't really an option unless God tells you to. In addition to this, what other options do you have? Uh, peace. Yes, let's take these people that we just ruined. We ruined their country. We put all of their lives at risk. Let's have peace. And just tell them, okay, no more fighting, guys. All right, have a good one. Bye. I'm sure that that won't result in more warfare. Or what do you think? If you have a nation that you just wrecked, and you're, you just went out to war with them, do you think that they'll ever, um, do you think they'll want revenge? Oh, I think so. After all, this is not the first time the Moab was at war with Israel. Moab has tons of wars with the ancient Israelites, going all the way back to the book of Judges, and even after the Exodus. So the moment these people recover and are able to try again at victory, oh look, they have it again. Syria tried again and again and again and again and again to defeat Israel and conquer them until finally under King Hazael they, they accomplished it. So you see what I'm getting at here. You conquer a people, you defeat them in warfare, and you have the option to kill them all, which will displease our Lord, because he did not command such a cleansing. You have the option to let them be, but that's just kicking the can down the road of the problems that could arise. And maybe you could, maybe you could do what the Assyrians did and scatter them over the face of the earth, but... Quite a bit of that is just unfeasible for a tiny nation like Israel, surrounded by people who were hostile to them. Oh, hello there, uh, Syria. Yes, Damascus. We uh, we sent these messengers to uh, to inform you that these people we we would like to dump them on your land, please. <laughs> the only reason Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, was able to do this was because, well, they owned the land that they conquered. All of it. So they were able to mix people around and throw them around everywhere. So you have the option then of slavery. I've conquered these people. I don't want them to recover and fight me again. I don't want them to die. And I don't want to leave them to starve to death in the, in the land that I just ruined here. Or even with David's wars in Second Samuel chapter 8... Uh, even just an economic hit that leaves them miserable and impoverished, do I want to just leave them there? No. And I can't spread them around to make sure they're never a threat to me again. So slavery ends up being something of a merciful option considering the alternatives. Slavery says these people will be fed. These people will be put to work. These people that we just conquered in warfare will not fight against us again, or at least it's much less likely that they could rebel against us, and we're, we're not killing them. Wipe the dust off my hands, case closed. 
Slavery ends up being an alternative to genocide, an alternative to leaving people to starve to death. It is a way, in a, in a manner of speaking, of obeying the um, fifth commandment here, you shall not kill, by preserving life. Remember, each commandment has a positive and a negative, and you shall not kill comes with the positive formulation of you shall preserve and cultivate life. Now, does that mean that if America goes to war right now, she should take slaves? Of course not. Because back in the day, that was the alternative. Nowadays, we have nuclear options. We have mechanized infantry. Uh, we have so much that we can do to make sure that a war doesn't happen again. And honestly, with the way a post-scarcity economy works, we can help countries recover quite a bit better than, well, than King David could have. Destroy a nation and then build them up. Wasn't that kind of the Marshall Plan for West Germany? And that was what we did for Japan at MacArthur's urging. So you don't, I wouldn't say that we should take slaves if we win in warfare. In fact, again, it's better to not be a slave than to be a slave. Back then, it was the least evil of options to keep people alive and to make sure that the flame of their family name was not extinguished. And it was a way to keep them fed. Maybe for some of them to even live a good life where at some point they're able to win back their freedom in a positive way. I believe the Gibeonites are a good example of this. But that it was a habit, well... We see even, but coming back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 now, what do we see? Even after David sins with Bathsheba, even after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and the child dies, we see here in verse 26 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the water city. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, or I myself will take the city and it will be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. He took the crown of Milcom from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. He also brought forth the spoil of the city, a very great amount. He brought out the people who were in it and set them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, or sent them to the brickworks. Thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So, in that time, Joab says, I could take the city. Could be mine. Uh, how about you get over here and you do it instead? You should be at war instead of uh, getting in trouble with women right now. So David does that. And what does David do? He takes and enslaves the entirety of the surviving Ammonites. In part because the booty that he got, the spoils of war, were all the gold and silver and the water supplies of Ammon, meaning that these people, again, are denied the ability to do pasture for their sheep and their flocks. They don't have money to buy the goods they need while recovering from the war. And David says, okay, I'm going to put you to work instead. You're all slaves now. So that's, that's the case back then. And again, that is not the answer today. 
if we are called to a just war, then we fight until we bring them to the table and then we make a treaty. That's generally speaking what we want to do to prevent that and then to guard ourselves with our nice modern technology and our post-scarcity economy, guard ourselves from being attacked again. That's how things work now when we have the luxury of saying in Christian love, I do not want my enemy to be my slave. And just as I don't want to be a slave, if I were to have slaves, I would want to set them free. But slavery in and of itself is not sinful. And I wouldn't even go so far as to condemn it. I would not say that the North was in the right in the American Civil War. Why? Because they shed 600,000 American lives, shed all their blood to force a good deed upon the South. When only a small fraction of Southerners even owned slaves at this time. It was thoroughly unrighteous on both sides to be engaging in this. The South, because uh, well, while it is true, I would say even most of the slave owners were not Christians. The ones who were should have an accordance with the new obedience, obeying God because we are saved. They should have done their duty and freed their slaves. But they didn't. Why? Because, well, it's making me rich at this plantation here. And the North said, well, I'm going to force you to do this good deed, and I'm going to kill your people. And by the way, we're going to destroy your railroad tracks, so you aren't going to be able to economically recover from this. We're going to have Tecumseh's march from the sea. The sea. You know, Sherman's march to the sea here destroying all your fields and doing, well, the same thing that uh, King Jehoram and King Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom did to Moab. Because you won't free your slaves. Are you seeing where I'm getting at? The, the Civil War was a, a hideous tragedy. Something that nobody should ever celebrate, regardless of who won. But slavery itself, let's call it what it is. It's unfortunate. It's better for it to not be around than for it to be around. At times in the past, it has been uh, something of an unfortunate necessity to make sure that conquered peoples did not die. And in economic famine, economic downturns and depressions back then, we have to remember that people sold themselves into slavery as a form of welfare because they did not have the, the benefits of today's modern economy with food stamps and unemployment benefits. It was either you worked or you died. And sure, maybe there would be charity. There was gleaning. But what happens when there's a famine and there is no gleaning? Nothing can be, a, a, people can't afford to do that. Or everybody's gleaning. So that you and your family can enjoy uh, like Jack and the Beanstalk from Disney, you know, slicing open the one lima bean for your dinner. So back then, it was, it was a necessity. It was something that people had to do to survive. Selling themselves or their family into slavery in order to make ends meet for a time until they could become free again. And in war, again, this prevents genocide. This prevents um, forcing a people to die or be completely broken. In fact, there's dignity in work, I would say. It's better to be a dignified slave than somebody who is free on rotting land destroyed by stones with no money that will simply, well, starve to death or live in squalor until they die a poor and broken person. Better to have that second chance. 
So back then, it was something that God would not condemn because a lot of times that was the only way people were going to live. And today, I would say, well, we do condemn slavers, those who kidnap and force people into slavery. The scripture condemns men who do that. The institution of slavery is unfortunate. It should be, I, I believe that yes, it should be abolished. It should be replaced with something more dignified. Feudalism was better than slavery. And feudalism is, well, pretty close to slavery itself. But feudalism, at least you had the dignity of serving your, your lord and your knights and your church and your country. So, that said, I thank God that it's not around. But let's not accuse the Bible of not living up to our morality. And let's not twist the word of God to make it fit worldly morality. Instead, let's submit to it and rejoice as we as Christians get to peacefully, helpfully, lovingly try to give people their freedom back. The same way Christ, our Lord Jesus, has given us our freedom from sin, death, and the devil. Amen and amen.